HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hello and welcome to Cooking Issues. We're recording on a Monday, but we're going to be broadcasting on a Tuesday. So if you're listening to it now, you're probably not listening to it live. But uh, if you happen to have read our blog post, you can call in your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. This is the last Cooking Issues before the big museum fundraiser event that's going on uh, at Del Posto next weekend on Sunday. You can still go and buy your tickets at... MOFAD, M-O-F-A-D, that's Museum of Food and Drink, MOFAD.Eventbrite, B-R-I-T-E, uh, dot com. That's uh, MOFAD, uh, MOFAD.Eventbrite.com. Anyway, uh, we are privileged today to have a special call-in guest. Harold McGee is going to be the, the ultimate master blaster of the science of deliciousness. Is going to be joining us via phone. Unfortunately, we're working uh, very hard on the museum uh, event, and so Nastasha cannot be with us today in the studio because, in fact, she is delivering produce to WD-50 because Wiley Dufresne is going to be working on the dish today for, uh, you know, doing some preparatory work today for his dish. So no Nastasha. But we do have Harold. Harold, are you there? I am, Dave. Good morning. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. How's the West Coast treating you? Uh, it's it's okay. This last week has been really rainy and cold. Uh, today it uh, it was sunny to begin with, but the sun has disappeared, so it looks like it, it may be another grim week. Uh, I'd love it then. You know, I hate the sunshine. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, but you know, fifty degrees, you want a little, uh, a few rays. Yeah. All right. All right. Yes. If it's going to be fifty out, it might as well be a little bit. Uh a little bit sunny. Okay, so you want to start uh, hitting these questions? We have a bunch of email questions in. Sure. Uh, before, before we start, someone uh, wrote in one of the questions. Uh, they want to know the secret of Thai iced tea, uh, the mysterious spices in Thai iced tea. And I have to say, I don't know because I'm not a uh, – I don't really – I don't drink it. Um, do you drink it? I'm afraid I, ha- I haven't for a long time. I did a couple times years ago. And, uh, uh, yeah, I just can't pull back the, uh, the flavors. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think that, you know, this is the kind of, uh, question, uh, Aaron wrote in with it. I think this is the kind of question, um, you know, I would hate to give just a researched answer off of the web of, of what belongs in it because I don't have the actual taste memory in my head to know whether it's right or not. It's not something I've worked on because it's not something that, it's just not something that I've you know focused on ever. But you know, I'm sure that we can 
find the answer. I mean, if you, uh, you know, if you see Pim when you're out there or something like that, we can probably get the answer of what the what the stuff is. But I would hate to, I would hate to guess on something like that. Yeah, yeah, no, same here. All right, Aaron. So I apologize, but I will not be able to answer that question this week because uh, I just don't want to give uh, an answer that's BS. I'd rather not give a BS. I'd rather give no answer than a BS answer, right? Yeah, and also, I mean, uh, uh, for Aaron to do his own research, uh, Shea Pym would be a good place to start. Uh, David Thompson's book on Thai cooking is uh, seems to be the the standard. So there are a couple of you know authorities you can start with, and then kind of move on from there. Yeah, I'm sure Thompson has a recipe for it in the book. I have it at home. I just haven't been home to to look at it to get the uh, to get the, the recipe out of it. But his book is you know. As far as I can tell, quite well respected. I know that he's done all of his research on the on kind of the old, on the old manuscripts. He has a, a thorough knowledge of uh, current Thai cooking and historical Thai cooking. So, and in fact, I think he has a, a new book uh, this last year on uh, street cooking, street Thai, uh, which might be uh, an even better place to look. Yeah. And that's where we'd probably go anyway if we were just going to give you – it wouldn't be our answer. It would be his answer anyway. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or, or check out Pim's, uh, Pim's uh, site. Now, it's, I'm going to knock out uh, one question right away. And, uh, Harold, you can chime in because you've had some of this stuff. But uh, 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 Rick writes in and says that his roommate, Zach's advisor, just purchased a new uh, rotary evaporator for the lab and has agreed to let them use it for a few days for food purposes. And they want to take maximum advantage – of uh, of everything that they can do in it, and uh, you know they want to build their own, but they they're not ready for it quite yet, and so they want to know what we should do. Like uh, it, he just wants to distill basically as much as possible. Um, he wants to get the flavors of falernum uh, into it. Maybe he wants to do um, Martel Cordon Blue is ripe for something. I've I've actually wrote a vat, and Harold, you've had it. Uh, we did a, an event with uh, Mandy Aftel where we rotovap Martel with frankincense. I don't know whether you like frankincense, but Martel does rotovap quite well. Uh, he wants to do something with maybe uh, absinthe, any of these things, oak, dirt, grass, cigars, uh, peppers, like guajillo ancho and stuff like that. What are the rotovap stuff do you like, uh, Harold? Uh, pretty much everything you've done. <laughs> Thanks. I, I love what you do with habaneros, for example. That's that's an amazing experience to be able to separate the the heat from the aroma. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, I've done dried and and uh, have you ever had any of the dried pepper? I prefer the fresh pepper ones because I like the floral note that they have more. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And then, I mean, the, the dishes that I've had uh, that have really stuck in my head, in fact, the very first one is probably still the the one I remember best, uh, is the the Roca family did a um, an oyster in a jelly that was flavored with uh, earth. Uh, so um, uh, one of the ideas on the list here was, uh, along with oak and grass and cigars, was dirt. And dirt works, although uh, you and I had it, I think, um, when um, uh, the Rokas were visiting the FCI, and it wasn't the same. Well, they didn't give it to me. He wouldn't give. It, he said he was going to give it to me, and he didn't, probably because it wasn't the same, maybe. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, in fact, I, I had it, and it wasn't as good. And I, I think with something 
uh, a flavoring that you uh, rotovap that isn't a standard food ingredient. Uh, it's more of an environmental uh, aroma. Uh, I think you have to just nail the concentration just right. Otherwise, it tastes like dirt instead <laughs> of like the forest. <laughs> well, and also they were using a water-based distillate, and the water-based distillates tend not to be fixed very well. So if they're opening and closing the bottle and it has to be transported, I mean, I don't know. Uh, what kind of freshness problem they have with that just in terms of loss of the volatiles. But, I mean, it's a huge problem with uh, with non-alcoholic rotovapped products is that they just tend to the, – the aroma is so fugitive. They tend to just go, you know? Could yeah. That, could that yeah. have been it? Was it overly dirty or was it just not, not as – just – Unbalanced? What was it? The, the one? Well, it's a good question. You know, I was I was guessing that it was uh, the concentration because it did seem to be just stronger, um, but it could have been stronger because you know the wrong things were were popping out, and um, so it it could have been that it was just a you know he he had to prepare the distillate and then bring it with him, and who knows how many days old it was, and that may have been the problem. Right. Well, okay. If you have a rotovap for just like, a couple of days. I would uh, obviously I would recommend trying something that you could do no other way, and that would be some sort of fresh herb, right? Uh, some sort of fresh herb uh, that you distill, and I would drink that right away. Make it very, very fresh, very you know, summery, spring-like. Uh, that's like you know the one that we do with the um, with the Thai basil and cilantro and uh, the cucumber and the orange, right? Something something like that with those flavors, because uh, you can't recreate that with a normal distillation because the temperature is too high and it's going to alter the flavor of the herb. So I would definitely do that. I would then do um, something like a, a, a pepper. I would choose a fresh one that's floral, kind of red, so you can get the floral notes, so you can see what it's like that the spice doesn't go through. I would then do horseradish because horseradish makes an intensely, intensely pungent because the, the, the pungent principle of horseradish does distill and that's going to last you a long time. So you'll have that for a, a, you know, a good long time. Then, then just start doing wacky things like de-oak some liquors, um, you know, try some of the culinary preps like uh, dirt or earth. Just remember you're going to have to uh, – some of the things that are more aromatic like horseradish or, um, or habaneros or whatever you do, you're going to have to totally break down and clean all the grease out of the rotovap joints uh, before you run the next batch because you'll get contaminated. There's also – if you've never run one, unless your roommate knows how to run it really well or the, or the, the, you know, the professor knows how to run it really well, there is a learning curve associated with it. Don't set it to the automatic distillation. Sit there and, and actually constantly force the distillation so that you're getting uh, the fastest rate possible. Set your chiller as low as it can possibly go. For alcohol, you're going to want to set it around minus 20 Celsius. We now use a cold finger distillation, distill with uh, liquid nitrogen, and we can do water-based distillations that way. But um, have some fun with it. Tell us how it worked out. Right? That's good advice, right, Harold? Yeah. Yeah. It's always fun. (laughs) Good stuff. I've never done a cigar. Hi. I don't know. I've done smoky stuff. I've never done a cigar. Anyway, um, an unsmoked cigar, you think he means, or like the ashes of cigar? No, it must be unsmoked. I mean, the the, the fermented leaves, That's the that would be really interesting. Right. Right. But it's not characteristically what you think of as cigar, the smoke. It's different. It's a completely different thing. Well, yeah, it's the cigar box smell rather than the... Yeah, the, the the smoke room, which which I think is a good thing. <laughs> right, yeah. All right. Here's a question for you, Harold. Uh, does re- using reduced fat uh, milk lead to a higher whey a higher whey production in uh, when you're making yogurt? Like if you were to break it. 
Well, uh, it shouldn't, uh, because if you're using reduced-fat milk, usually reduced-fat milk is um, supplemented with uh, whey solids, which include uh, lactoglobulin, which is uh, a whey protein, not the, the casein proteins that, that curdle, but a uh, whey protein that's soluble. But when you, when you heat the milk... Uh, which you should do at 180 for 30 minutes before you make the yogurt. That protein denatures and helps uh, give the yogurt body and and uh, water retaining uh, ability. And so a, a reduced fat milk is going to have more of that protein, and it should in fact uh, release less whey rather than more. Hmm. And the heating then is necessary to uh, alter the whey proteins. That is a necessary step because that was one of the questions before. Uh, yeah, in fact, if you uh, if you just make the the yogurt without the preheating step, you'll of course still get uh, curdled milk, but it's not going to have the kind of um, thick, pleasing consistency that you really want. Mm-hmm. There you have it. All right, and uh, then as a separate question, what makes uh, a marinade effective? Obvious factors are uh, time. But uh, what about uh, oils, ratios of oils, acids, or other liquids, or the consistency of the herbs and other aromatics? Uh, Joshua would like to know. What do you think? Well, um, yeah, different ingredients are going to provide different things. uh, And uh, consistency, for example, you're going to get a lot more direct contact with uh, the meat that you're marinating if the uh, material has been finely comminuted. So if it's it's ground or very, very finely minced instead of chopped or whole. Um, uh, If it's spices, then... Uh, you know, some of the aromas are going to get out into the liquid and will get into the into the meat that way. But there's not much that happens beyond the surface unless you're actually going to leave it in there for days. So that's something to keep in mind. Or if you vacuum bag. Uh, yeah, yeah, or, or, that's right. Or jacquard, obviously. If you jacquard it or inject, then you can have this stuff happen very quickly. I mean, I've noticed, okay, so a lot of people, they'll do uh, a buttermilk marinade which, you know, chicken is fairly friable. Along the fibers, you can get some penetration. And if you vacuum bag it, you especially can when you cook it that way. I find sometimes it gets like uh, acidic brines. For me, if you're not going to take the next step and overcook the meat in a traditional way, if you're going to do sous vide work on it, it just is too mushy to me. You lose too much structure. What do you think? Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, that's that's uh, something you see. You know, if you if you do a, a typical wine marinade and overdo it, then what you end up with is the surface layer that you can just scrape off because the the meat has has denatured so much, and you don't want that. Uh, so, uh, uh, using one of those the methods that you mentioned in order to speed it up, if you really want some penetration, and otherwise, you know, put put the flavors in the sauce. Right. I mean, I tend to when I marinate, I tend to. You're right, exactly. I put acidic flavors and things like that in the sauce, with rare exceptions, and I put the functional ingredients for the well, water holding capacity for proteins, salts, and sugars, and things like that in the marinade or brine. I mean, that's typically what I do. Yeah, yeah, because salts are going to get into the meat. Uh, flavor molecules are much bigger. Salt, salt breaks down into ions. They're, they're tiny little particles that can move in and out of the meat pretty easily, but uh, flavor molecules are not going to do the same thing. Right. 
Caleb has a question about smoking sausage. He purchased some cherry chipotle pork sausage. That's like a cherry chipotle. It's got a ring to it there, right? And he's pretty excited about it. Would simply smoking the sausage as he would for a brisket or pork ribs, would that be a valid and delicious way to cook it? I don't see why not. Do you have any thoughts on that? No, sounds good to me, and, you know, get some cherry wood. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the trick with the, the smoking, right, I mean, the, the trick with any sort of sausage cookery is that uh, when you're cooking off a sausage, uh, typically what happens is you overcook the hell out of the sausage, and you're relying on the high fat content of the sausage, and hopefully the crafts, you know, the crafts, you know, person who made it, making sure that there's enough fat in there such that it stays uh, juicy even when it's overcooked. Right, so if you can, I would try to control the smoking uh, such that the sausage itself doesn't get much above 140 uh, when you're doing it. And I think then you're going to have like a really you know fantastic product. When we're cooking a sausage, is what we'll typically do is is uh, water bath them at 140, which is 60 in Celsius land, and then uh, and then grill them or fry them or pan them to get that nice you know kind of crusty outside to it. So I think a lot of it is going to be about the temperature control. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that that's that's one of the, the most common sins in the kitchen is overcooking sausages and losing all the you know all that craftsmanship that that goes into mixing the the fat with the the meat just goes away the moment that you overcook it to the point that all the the juices are squeezed out. Yeah, what's the point, right? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Just because it's a sausage. Well, it tastes good, but. Right. Yeah, but just because it's a sausage doesn't mean you should mistreat it. You know what I mean? And it's so easy not to mistreat it, especially if you have a circulator on board. You know, you can just. It makes life so easy. Anyway, uh, all right. So we're going to go to our first commercial break. If anyone should be around listening, and it's remember, we're recording on Monday, not Tuesday. Call in your questions to 718 497 2128. 718 497 2128. Cooking issues. service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Every Sunday at 4.30 p.m., tune in to Burning Down the House. Architecture is the laser focus of Burning Down the House, a weekly discourse on all things built, destroyed, admired, and despised. Each week, Curtis B. Wayne, your host, invites a posse of authors, critics, builders, designers, and other architecture fiends to reflect on various topics related to perhaps the most functional of all art forms. Again, that's every Sunday at 4.30 p.m. on the Heritage Radio Network. Hello, and welcome back to Cooking Issues. Call in your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Curtis Wayne, host of the show, not to be confused with Wayne Curtis, noted rum scholar. Weird, huh? Uh, Harold, you uh, still with us? Yes, indeed. Beautiful, beautiful. All right. Um, So, where were we? 
Uh, we had a question. I will read it to you from Colin Gore. He uh, often asks us questions, but this one is specifically for you. Harold, the sweet potato is a delectable amalgam of starch, pectin, sugars, and other components. This I know. This mixed composition of sweet potato guts makes it a very versatile tuber. What I'm fuzzy on is why adding some acid, let's say vinegar, to hot sweet potato puree improves the film-forming properties of the puree upon drying. Without the vinegar, the film is glassy and brittle. But with the vinegar addition, the final film is essentially a kick-ass sweet potato fruit roll-up. I saw a recipe for abulato, which calls for the addition of some vinegar to the simmering potato starch solution, so I assume that the vinegar modifies, interacts with the starch in the sweet potato and other sweet potato components are just along for the ride. What is your hunch on what is being modified? Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll hit that first. By the way, for those of you uh, who don't know, uh, the abulato is that, uh, I think that's how it's pronounced, I don't know. It, those are those potato starch uh, sheets that you can wrap things in. You can you can buy them. I think, um, I forget where they're made. Are they made in Japan or Spain? I, I don't know. I don't really use them, but that's what they are. Uh, any, any thoughts on this, uh, Harold? You know, this is uh, really interesting. I'm, I need to play with this. Uh, my, my guess is that uh, he's right, that uh, it's an effect on the starch. You're, you're getting uh, some limited hydrolysis, and that kind of plasticizes the starch so that when you dry it all the way down, you know, you've got some, you've got more um, uh, small sugar uh, molecules and small portions, small um, pieces of starch that help soften the, the film uh, so that it can't form as, uh, as brittle as he, as he describes. And uh, probably the same thing is going on with the sweet potato. Normally, starch, uh, I'm sorry, acidity um, uh, makes vegetable matter of various kinds uh, harder. Uh, by limiting the degree to which the the um, cell wall components can be removed, uh, but in this case it's the opposite uh, effect. And because he's seen it in in a pure starch uh, system, my guess is that he's right that that's what's going on. Right, but it seems strange that you would have uh, hydrolysis with just a little bit of uh, acid, you know, and. Conversely, though, it's it's not like a protein where you're shifting the you know the isoelectric point by adding a little by shifting the pH a little bit and then radically changing its properties. It seems odd. Maybe he's adding a lot of acid. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, well, that's it. I I don't uh, get an idea here uh, for how much acid is being added, uh, but you know it doesn't take a whole lot to. Uh, uh, to change the hydrolysis rate, you'll get you'll get hydrolysis of starch in in neutral water, just from the water itself. So it might be that um, uh, just shifting the pH a little bit uh, can can make a significant difference. So it's similar to adding a little bit of acid to a sugar boil when you're boiling it. It's going to increase the breakdown. If the longer you boil it, the higher the breakdown. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And yeah, that's that's the other thing that's missing here is uh, any sense of uh, of timing. You know, how long it takes, whether this happens kind of immediately or whether you have to kind of incubate it to let it happen. Right. Because, Don't know. Because any breakdown of the starch into shorter train, chain, uh, you know, uh, sugars and dextrins and things like that is going to plasticize the the sheet somewhat, right? Yeah. Yeah. Of course, exactly. so would adding a maltodextrin, but maybe you know, this is easier, I guess. Yeah, that's true. If you uh, if you add small uh, small molecules uh, as another ingredient, then you could get the same effect without without the the acidity and without the flavor of vinegar, and right. that that might be an interesting alternative. 
And vinegar is also an interesting choice because although it's, for instance, what I use in my candy boils and it's traditional, um, it's a volatile acid. So why, you know, it would be, it's interesting that you would choose a volatile acid maybe as a self-limiting measure. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Interesting. Because uh, I'd also have to, I, I've never done a test of uh, boiling vinegar, testing the pH before and after and seeing how much of the vinegar, the acidity is reduced by the boiling. Uh, you know, once you recorrect for the uh, liquid loss. Yeah, yeah. I've played around with that, with that a little bit, uh, not not really systematically, just kind of you know uh, with my left hand while I was doing something else, just to, just out of curiosity. And it seems as though the the pH anyway is relatively constant. You know, as you as you boil it down, boil a five percent solution down, which surprised me. Because hmm. it should get more acidic, right? You'd think so, but but you as you as you say, you are boiling off um, acetic acid as well as water as you boil. So it boil it basically you lost vinegar at almost the same rate as water. Right, right. Oh, interesting. I mean, I know for a fact that when you spray dry vinegar, you get the taste of vinegar, but not the acidity. So you need to augment the acidity with a separate acid when you're making, let's say, uh, vinegar potato chips and you're, and you're sprinkling um, vinegar powder, which is spray-dried with a maltodextrin carrier. When you do that, you have to add a supplementary acidity to get the acidity back to where you want it. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's volatile enough. And then, uh, Colin's second question, because we have, we have pumped your, your awesome walnuts on the, on the show. So he has a question <laughs> here. Is there anywhere on the East Coast that a fellow can find walnuts low in tannins and astringency? Is it merely a matter of harvesting walnuts in an immature state uh, on uh, San Giovanni's Day, as many Nocino recipes call for? I did not know that. Uh, I don't know what species grow in Italy where those recipes originate. Um, and... and we have black walnuts locally. I'm interested in finding nearby sweet, sweet nuts, as yours are likely off-limits. I would be delighted if you could enlighten us further on the matter. All right, let's have the talk on walnuts. <laughs> I don't think there's anything off-limits about California walnuts. I think they'd love to sell more of them. Uh, the, the problem is finding a, a source on the East Coast of the good stuff, because you know that it ranges from good to not so good. And you can tell just by looking at the nuts uh, how astringent they're going to be. The lighter the seed coat, uh, the milder they're going to be. Um, uh, and, of course, you want to make sure by looking at them as well that they're fresh because that's going to be the other problem. You know, If they've been shipped across the country, then who knows what kind of shape they're in once they get there. Uh, immature walnuts are wonderful, but they're nothing like um, the walnuts we're talking about here. They're they're wonderful, crunchy. They're not that astringent, but boy, you have to wear gloves in order to deal with them, right? Stain the heck out of your hands, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. They they do have that. The, the fruits do do give you that wonderful kind of aroma. Uh, that's nothing like a, a standard, you know, dried walnut uh, aroma. But uh, yeah, it's a, a completely different experience and a mess. Right. Well, I try. Well, you know, I, as a kid, I used to play around with that stuff. That stuff does not come out of your hands. It just doesn't. <laughs> Um, because we had a bunch of walnut trees around. But the – okay, so at your house, we tried the red walnuts, which people are are pushing, but those weren't the miracle nuts. They were nice. They were good, the red walnuts. Maybe you could say something about those. But it was these uh, very low astringency. Why don't they just – why don't they just ship only that 
like like is it more difficult to produce? Is it a tree by tree variation, the same way it is with acorns? You know, some acorns are more bitter than others, uh, and you just have to know the tree. I mean, um, I don't really know much about walnut propagation. Is walnut clonal? Is this done by graft? Is it done by seed? Is it just lucky shots? Like, why isn't every and as a separate ancillary question, like why are California almonds so low in oil? Why, why, why do they grow them so low in oil? But in other words, like, could could they make all the walnuts this delicious and they just don't? I think so. I, I think it's for the most part a matter of variety. And um, uh, you know, there's a particular guy I go to at the farmers market out here who uh, has several different batches. He's got red walnuts, he's got the really light-skinned walnuts, and he's got darker ones. Um, and they're priced accordingly. The red ones are more expensive than the light ones, which are more expensive than the dark ones. And, you know, you just, you, you can take your pick. We like, uh, the light, we like the light ones best, though, right? Yeah, because they have the uh, just the, the nicest flavor, the nicest nutty flavor. Um, I think the reason, though, uh, the, the red ones are awfully good. The red ones have, instead of having tannins in the the, the brown uh, seed coat, they have um, anthocyanins, the same pigments that give color to lots of fruits and vegetables, grapes, things like that. Um, they're they're very delicious too, and they're not nearly as tannic as. Um, uh, as standard walnuts. Uh, I think the reason you didn't like them as much is that that batch of red ones wasn't as fresh as my batch of pale ones. Ah, so they're just as walnutty. Yeah, yeah. No, they're, they're delicious. Um, all right. Well, yeah. I, I stand corrected then on the, on, on the red nuts, but what's this farmer's name? Do you know? I don't. I don't. Um, uh, I know it's on his truck, and I'm just not able to... to Pull it into memory at the moment. <laughs> he's at the ferry market, the ferry tunnel market. Uh, no, he's actually at the Alamany Farmers Market. All right, well, go Which, go look for the sweet nuts at Alamany Farmers Market. Right. <laughs> but why can't they? Why like? Is anything? It's just freshness. It can't be like why? Why do they only? Why do they even grow the darker skin? Is it just easier? Yeah, I, I think it's, um, and, and it may be that it's just a matter of, uh, you know, farmers covering their bets if they just all grow the, the same variety and there happens to be a problem with that variety. It's the old, um, you know, monoculture problem. Um, and also, I'm, I'm just not exactly sure which variety is which here. It may be that this is a new one or it's an old one and it's not as productive. There, there might be all kinds of reasons for the the pre- predominance of the darker, more tannic nuts. Right. I mean, I really don't know much about walnut culture at all. I don't know how long it takes for a tree to come into bearing or, I mean, they know they bear for a long time, but I don't know kind of what the farm cycle is on a, on a walnut tree. Why, why are... Uh, why are almonds from California so low in oil? Do they do that on purpose? It's uh, a good question. You and I have tried to figure that one out. Why are uh, almonds from California just not more delicious? Yeah. And uh, no, offense, no offense, California. <laughs> but they could. I mean, they're. I mean, talk about uh, tannic, tough, thick skins. Um, uh, there, there's no mistaking a, a California. Almond, uh, and I don't know. It, again, it may be a matter of uh, agronomic yield rather than uh, quality. Um, I'll, I'll look into that. Yeah. I'll ask some questions because I would pay more for more. In fact, we do. We pay more for European almonds that are higher in oil and more delicious. Yeah, right? yeah. Mm. Anyway, all right. Uh, 
Aaron writes in from Hull, and he says that he's going to be curing some bacon next week, and he intends to use uh, Michael Ruhlman's uh, charcuterie recipe for it, which is uh, for 450 uh, grams of salt to 225 grams of sugar to 50 grams pink salt. Pink salt, uh, I'm assuming he's using uh, the Instacure number one, which is uh, nitrite, not a nitrate. You want to make sure that you know which pink salt you're dealing with. Uh, and he's going to co- coat the pork belly with some of this mixture and leave it in the fridge or freezer for uh, some number of days before roasting it until it reaches an internal temperature of 65, etc., etc. Uh, kosher salt is hard to come by where I live. Is sea salt like um, Malden a – I think he means Malden. It says Morden here, but Malden is a suitable substitute. Suitable but extremely expensive. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean the, the, the main thing you're going to want to do uh, is uh, – I mean, I don't really think it makes that much of a difference in that people have uh, all these uh, uh, questions about wh- whether or not certain salts are bad for um, for curing. It's true that sea salts probably have some sort of extra minerals in them, but I don't know what they add to the brining process. In pickles, it's extremely important not to use uh, certain salts because they can discolor the pickle, but I don't know that it's a big deal in, in a brine for a bacon. Do you, Harold? <laughs> Uh, I, I don't think so. It, I know that it is an issue in the curing of fish, white fish like cod, because uh, the the calcium and magnesium salts can end up causing the the cod to yellow. But with a bacon, that's not an issue. Right. And ham guys swear that the type of salt that they use makes a difference. In fact, I'm wearing a Finchfield Farms country ham hat right now. Um, <laughs> they say it makes a, a difference, but I don't really know what the basis is. I, I could go research. I have Fidel Toldra's book on dry-cured meat products, and I could look into the effect of the different um, salt components. But I am sure that you will be fine. If your wallet allows you to use Malden, uh, then, um, then, then go ahead. Oh, maybe they meant... Uh, Morton sea salt. Any sea salt is going to work fine. Uh, I would like to try a bacon cure with maple syrup for a friend. Should I just add some maple syrup to the freezer bag? I'm planning on doing this by eye until it's pretty evenly covered. Does this affect the curing process in any way that I should know? Well, you're going to be doing a, a wet cure in that, and you would substitute maple syrup for the water and sugar and then put salt into the maple syrup, I assume. Right, Harold? That sounds right to me, yeah. 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 Uh, number three was how long should I leave the bacon to cure? I'm guessing the amount of time will be a function of the size, shape, weight of the meat I am curing. Could you give me some guidelines? Um, I don't have any in my head. Um, I believe that the charcuterie book, Michael Ruhlman's book, has some, some guidelines in it. You can accelerate the cure by putting it in a vacuum bag, but usually penetration is based on the, uh, the actual strength of the brine you're using, which is crucial. So if you're going to add water to it, like with maple syrup, that's going to reduce the brine, theoretical brine strength. And then on a certain number of days for penetration, a certain number of inches into the meat, and it also is going to depend on the particular fat um, the fat quantity in your piece of meat uh, versus the lean. Do you have any anything on that, Harold? Uh, no, that's that's about all I could come up with. Um, uh, there are charts in books, uh, and and uh, as you say, um, uh, days per inch guidelines, uh, and uh, that's that's really the place to go. Yeah, and then lastly, uh, he's just ordered a piece of equipment that'll allow him to try sous vide cooking at home. Congratulations! Uh, would would uh, he be better cooking the pork belly this way after curing or not? If so, is there anything he should look out for using this method? Okay, uh, I happen to love pork belly uh, cure. Uh, cooked uh, sous vide, uh, in which case you choose the temperature you want to cook in general. I would do something below 65, something like 63, uh, 62, 63, even as low as 60. It's going to take that's Celsius, uh, so 140 and up uh, in that range. Um, It's going to take a a long time, like like three days, two, three days to get 
tendered where you want, and then crisp up the skin. Uh, oh, and I think he asked uh, later, should you leave the rind on? I would, wouldn't you? Yes, yeah, yes, I, definitely. I would leave the rind on, and then I wouldn't trim it at all. I would crisp the skin up uh, and serve it because that's the that's the best part. Once it's crisp, I mean, leave it on forever is what I would do. Yeah, uh, you know, <laughs> gnaw it off. Yeah, it's going to sound a little gross. But you might want to trim away the the areas where the teats are, just because they don't. Uh, they don't fit the pan as well. The crucial thing when cooking a pork belly for later uh, cooking is to compress it a little bit before you do so that you get a nice flat surface to pan the skin on to make it nice and crunchy. The other thing I've noticed, and Harold, I think we've talked about this before, is that when you have a – the pork belly isn't um, one specific muscle. It's a, it's a group uh, of muscles. Yeah. And um, some of them, the ones that are the streaky portion and streaky bacon, let's say, uh, they um, – they respond very well to uh, cooking for a long time on the order of, of several days. Uh, there's one muscle that runs through the pork belly in, in that's, uh, that you can really see in the cut that's called in Chinese uh, five fingers or five flour, whatever it is, pork. Uh, one of those muscles doesn't respond very well to long cooking and gets mushy and, and, uh, and kind of tastes kind of dry. And so uh, it's, it's a muscle that looks a little um, oval as you cut through the pork belly. Uh, and uh, I would – Take it out, uh, you know, and cook that some other way. Do, have you had that experience with pork belly, or have you noticed? Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, in, in no matter who's made it, yeah. If that muscle is in there, then then it's it's just different from the others. Um, kind of like uh, the shoulder. There's so many different muscles that some of them are just wonderful, and others are less so. Right. I would say. Yeah. I would say different and worse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and with that, listen, if anyone's out there, you have one more chance to call in 718. We're going to go to our next, second commercial break. Call in 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128, Cooking Issues. Welcome back to Cooking Issues, 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Our producer, Jack, was uh, pumping up the Hall Notes, this particular song, because he thinks it's nice, rainy day weather, which it is here in Brooklyn, rainy. Uh, I'll say one last time, you have a couple more days to go to mofad.eventbrite.com to purchase tickets for the museum fundraiser. I'll tell you a little bit about what I'm doing uh, at at the end of the show. But right now, let's get back. We have Harold McGee. On the phone. Hey, uh, would you consider the next time you're in town on a Tuesday to uh, do the show live here at the studio? I'd, yeah, I'd love to. Love to. Nice. Nice. I was. I saw. I saw uh, our mutual buddy Nathan Mirvold this morning. Nathan's doing uh, his uh, book tour. He uh, booked out Jean Georges Restaurant in the morning, and they cook some of the um, some of the dishes from his uh, cookbook. 
and uh, he might be a phone-in guest at some point, which would be fun. Uh, it was just pushing, you know, we have some some good some good guests, you know, coming. Like uh, apparently, Grant Akitz is gonna is gonna be on the uh, show sometime in uh, ah. in May. Uh-huh. I think. Uh, I think. I guess to push the uh, opening of the new place or what? I don't know. I don't know. I just I heard from uh, from his publicist. Anyways, this is what's going on in Cooking Issues Land. All right. Uh, <laughs> now we have a question for you from Tom M. My question for Mr. McGee is, does extended brining denature the enzymes in beef responsible for tenderizing it? I wish to have a tender corned beef brisket and have considered cooking it sous vide for 131 for 12 to 24 hours, shocking it in an ice bath, and only then brining it. But if brining does not denature uh, the tenderizing enzymes, then I might as well brine it for a couple of days, then do 131 sous vide, um, followed by low temperature smoking, and only then do a high temperature sous vide, uh, to get to collagen, transforming temperatures for the appropriate length of time. Uh, am I making things too complicated? And can I achieve it in a simpler manner? Well, I'll just I'll say two things before I hand it off to you, Harold. Uh, right. One, um, you don't want to shock. You never want to shock uh, a protein like that uh, after it comes out of the um, out of the bath because. If you do, you're um, you're basically going to uh, prevent the meat from reabsorbing some of the juices that have been expelled during the cooking. And even at 131, you're going to get juices expelled. So you're not going to you're not going to want to do that. I'm also going to say that I think that 131 is a little low for brisket. Um, you might want to look. I, it's it's people do it all the time. Very rare, long, long cookings like this. But I find that people, if they're expecting a cut of meat that is meant to be a little higher in temperature, it's better to go a little higher in temperature. Uh, but with that, let me hand it off to you, Harold. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd be interested to see what that's like, 131 brisket. But I have a feeling I'm gonna. I'd prefer it <laughs> at a higher temperature. Um, and then uh, on the issue of um, brining, denaturing the enzymes, uh, you know that uh, I've actually never thought of that. I, I know uh, in pretty good detail what's happening to the uh, fiber proteins during brining. And that's the the major effect of uh, uh, tenderizing effect of a brine on meat is that it it kind of unknits the uh, the muscle fibers and makes them uh, easier to cut through. Um, I've never thought about whether the the salt conditions are going to change the activity of the of the enzymes that do to some extent break down the collagen and the and the fiber proteins. Um, and so that's something I'm going to go look up when we're all done. I I have no idea. Right. But but uh, as a general principle. Uh, you want to do the brining before the cooking, not after. <laughs> the brining is only going to have its tenderizing, moistening effects if you do it while the meat is raw. Right, and also you can't cure cooked meat, right? I mean, corned beef is cured somewhat, so it's not going to be – you can't That's... cure cooked meat, can you? Uh, yeah, it's I mean, again kind of an interesting uh, counterintuitive sort of thing. I I, I think probably yeah, what's going to happen is that you will desiccate it, uh, but but the, um, uh, the the meat is is cooked, it's done, and anything you do to it with salt afterwards is just going to uh, dry it out and make it salty. Right, right. Um... Yeah, it's interesting. I've never even thought about trying to brine something afterward. But, I mean, corned beef, typically, you'd add some amount of uh, nitrite to it, wouldn't you? I mean, it's pink usually, right? So it's been mm-hmm. it's been pinked. It definitely won't pink out. You're going to have it look uh, gray. Well, you want at these temperatures at 131. 
I can't do the math in my head, but that's somewhere in the mid 50s, right? 131, yeah. somewhere in the mid 50s Celsius. Um, and you know, we do our short ribs a lot in that range, but find that people prefer them up closer to 140. Uh, between you know 140 and 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 a little over, um, but I definitely don't think you need to go through like a million different steps. I think it's going to probably affect it. You know, like you, the more steps, the more chance for things to going wrong, things to dry out, things to problems. What do you think? No, I agree. Um, uh, and if there's a, a straightforward way to do it, um, it's always almost always the best way to do it. Yeah, yeah. All right, so in the uh, those are the questions that have come in. So good, we have at least uh, four or five minutes. We can. Uh, what are you working on? Uh, um, I've actually been taking a little bit of a hiatus for a variety of reasons, and um, have not cooked uh, anything serious in in like a month. Wow. <laughs> wow. So. Uh, uh, but spring is coming, and uh, uh, I'm sure that's going to change fast. One thing I'm going to do uh, this coming weekend that I'm looking forward to is head off to uh, Spain for uh, a last meal at El Bui. Because it's for real going to be the last, it's like real deal last now? Uh, yeah, apparently uh, July 30th, I think, is the date now. The restaurant will close uh, as a restaurant and then reopen in the next day or two as a, uh, a think tank. Right. So who are you going with? Um, a chef out here in California named Daniel Patterson. I love Daniel Patterson. Yeah. Yeah, his restaurant's great. Yep. Yeah, uh, yep. and you know we worked uh, together. Um, you know, you know we all did uh, on uh, Mandy Aftel's uh, and his uh, taste. That what was it called? Taste the taste the smell. What was it called? Smell uh, the glove. What was it? <laughs> alchemy was in there somewhere. Yeah, alchemy of alchemy <laughs> of taste and smell. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You have any uh, any articles in the pipeline that you want to uh, you want to let out of the bag, or you want to keep them in the bag? No, in fact, that's something else I've been taking a hiatus from. Uh, but I'm hoping to get uh, another curious cook column into the New York Times in about a month. Yeah, people crave it, but you don't know what you're going to do yet. Uh, actually, it's going to be about salt. Oh yeah, what about yeah. it? And it, it, like, what kind of what kind of aspects? So many aspects of salt. Well, uh, exactly that. Uh, the, the fact that there are now so many salts, uh, and some people say that they all taste different, and that, uh, for example, kosher salt is uh, horrible stuff. Nobody should ever touch it. Um, uh, so I'm, I've collected um, probably close to 20 at this point, and um, there, there's been a very interesting controlled study with um, a professionally trained taste panel that actually tasted about 20 different salts to see if they could tell the difference. In, uh, in, in what form? Uh, as a 0.8% solution mm. to, to try to maximize the opportunity to taste the difference. Because, of course, if you're going to take salt and put it in mashed potatoes or something, odds are you're going to have no clue. Right, and so this is an extension of of, of uh, a project. Was it was it part of the Ariche things that Steingarten went to because he was doing it in Ariche years and years ago in his first book on salts? Remember that? 
Uh, that's right. In fact, uh, I, I remember that tasting very well. Uh, yeah, he he arrived with these little vials of, uh, of some of his favorite salts and some of his least favorites, and uh, then we there was a sensory scientist who took play uh, took part in the RHA meetings every year, and so he organized a, a triangle test uh, where basically you're you're handed three little vials and you have to tell which one is different from the other two and uh, we we all took the test in a, in a series of groups and then they tabulated the results at the end and it turned out that of the 40 people in attendance only one person was able to correctly distinguish all of the different salts and was that a fluke or reliably repeatedly was able to do it uh, we only did it once, so it, it may have been a fluke, but because that one person was Jeffrey Steingarten, oh. of course it wasn't. <laughs> That's hilarious. All right, so we'll be we'll be looking forward to that. And uh, so uh, I'll say what I'm working on for the museum uh, fundraiser coming up. I'm doing the amuse uh, bouche. I, we like to, you know, in the back room we always call it the amuse douche because I think it's a ridiculous word, amuse bouche. <laughs> Uh, anyway, uh, so the uh, yeah the amuse douche will be. Um, I gave myself food as medicine as my as my theme because you know everyone has a theme. Like Chang is do, is doing a pre nineteen uh, pre fourteen ninety one food in in America, so he's doing oysters and acorns. Uh, Wiley's got caveman food, Mark Ladner Rome, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I gave myself food as medicine, and uh, I'm using uh, an ingredient. Uh, I'm using. <laughs> Okay, so it turns out that uh, bitumen, you know bitumen, you know like uh, like a uh, pitch, piss asphalt, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, it's exuded uh, in uh, in the Dead Sea area and in Iran, and has been used as a medicine for centuries. As has a very similar um, exudate pitch ex- uh, exudate um, from the uh, Himalayas called uh, shilajit, right? And so, which is used in, in Ayurvedic medicine a lot. The shilajit is, and so. This was mistranslated by um, uh, from the Arab because Arab, you know, Arab medicine was the medicine in the you know eight nine hundreds in that range, right? So this was mistranslated by medieval scholars in uh, in like the eleventh century, as because uh, m- the word in Arabic is mummyi, like like mu- like sounds like mummy, and in fact the word English word for mummy is derived from the same root of like this waxy pitch bitumen. Our word uh-huh. comes from it. Uh, anyway, mistranslated this uh, medicinal ingredient, mummy, as ground up uh, human cadavers from Egyptian mummies. And <laughs> here started the trade in medicinal mummies. So m- <laughs> mummies were ground up by the boatload and sold in apothecaries all over, uh, all over Europe. And in fact, um, they ran out of a reliable mummy supply, so they would f- uh, make counterfeit mummies by grinding up and, and, and you know taking fresh cadavers, drying them out, and grinding them up. And so the original pitch, right, which was the, the part that the, you know, the bitumen, which wasn't actually in an authentic mummy because they didn't use bitumen until very late in the mummification uh, process uh, because it was cheap. You know, they used much more expensive stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, <clears throat> so. It got it changed from the bitumen being the important part of the medicine to the actual corpse. So then it got transmogrified even more, so that later on it was found that if someone died very suddenly uh, in the prime of life, then that's the best mummy that you can get. So like <laughs> for for centuries up until um, you know the prime time was like 16th and 17th century was prime mummy medicine time. Uh, so, uh, but it extended for a long time. Plus, mummy was used as a pigment up until the early 20th century. The mummy was a specific color of brown made by grinding up mummies, uh, and so. Uh, <laughs> 
and but it's come full circle again. Oh, also spawned like vampire legends, all sorts of cool, weird, 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 weird stuff, which I think I'm going to write about uh, for the blog, definitely, maybe for somewhere else. And uh, so I, I've located uh, a source of the uh, uh, shilajit, which is the one from the Himalayas. It's used in Ayurvedic medicine, and uh, so I'm going to have that as mummy. I'm going to put that onto uh, rhubarb that I'm going to cook uh, sous vide because uh, Francis the first of uh, France. Uh, always carried with him mummy and rhubarb as uh, some of his uh, medicaments to uh, help him from whatever ailed him. So that's going to be one component is mummy, mummy and rhubarb. And the next uh, component is going to be uh, when he was uh, defeated by Charles V, uh, he, they, uh, he was held captive and the Zupa alla Pavese was invented for, for him at that capture, which is basically bread with uh, an egg that's cooked by broth that's put in with shavings of Parmesan. So I'm going to do a little toast with uh, a gelée of broth, a uh, slow uh, done, well, not really slow, but low temperature done uh, quail egg and uh, Parmesan tuile. And so the, the other two components, you will have to come to the uh, fundraiser to taste, to, to know that. <laughs> anyway, so I'm going to thank Harold for being on the show. Uh, hopefully we'll get you in live next time you're in. Hopefully we'll talk to you soon. And we'll leave you with Mummy's Cooking Issues. Vicious, vicious. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on HeritageRadioNetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. And I just can't get it straight. The following is a public service announcement from the Museum of Food and Drink. Dave Arnold and Patrick Martins have gathered a team of New York's most innovative chefs and bartenders to create a nine-course fundraiser lunch at Del Posto, Sunday, March 27th. Their intent? To kickstart the greatest food museum in the world. The menu for this unprecedented event is derived from educational themes of the museum. Chefs will draw inspiration from sources outside their normal sphere. How will a cutting-edge chef handle the Paleolithic, or a dish only using pre-Columbian ingredients? What will a modern Italian chef do with ancient Rome? The chefs include David Chang of Momofuku, Wiley Dufresne of WD-50, Mark Ladner of Del Posto, Nils Noren of the French Culinary Institute, Cesare Casella of Salumeria Rossi, Carlo Maracci of Roberta's, Brooks Headley of Del Posto, and Christina Tozzi of Momofuku Milk Bar. Bartenders include Audrey Sanders of Pegu Club, Thomas Waugh of Death & Company, Simon Ford of Pernod Ricard, Damon Bolte of Prime Meats, and Eben Clem of BR Guest Restaurants. Proceeds from the event will directly support the Museum of Food and Drink. Tickets are very limited and $250 per person. To purchase tickets, please visit mofad.eventbrite.com. That's M-O-F-A-D dot eventbrite.com. Once again, M-O-F-A-D dot E-V-E-N-T B-R-I-T-E dot com. Sponsored by Pernod Ricard, Heritage Foods USA, Pat LaFrieda Meats, Barterhouse Wines, Del Posto Restaurant.